Good morning. So good to see you. My name's Dwayne. I'm one of the pastors here and hope you'll look in your outline, uh, look in your program, pull your outline out and follow along and take some notes. Uh, the verses we're talking about today will be printed there for you. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be very helpful for you as we talk about this important topic. You know, uh, for you uh, sports fans, baseball you know, started back up this week. Uh, pitchers and catchers reported to training camp. And uh, you know, the, the, the sad thing is, nobody's really talking about anybody's team. They're only talking about the big cheating scandal. If you're a sports fan, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, it's kind of ironic because, you know, the, the Astros, the Houston Astros are one of the teams that got caught cheating and they won the 2017 World Series. And when they showed up to camp, the players, they went to interview the players and, you know, pretty much the attitude was, ah, what we did wasn't really that bad. We would have won anyway. You know, we, you know it, it's just baddish. It wasn't really bad. Now, of course, players on other teams feel a little differently, right? They're really angry about it. Like, man, what they did was really bad. What they did was really bad. Now, of course, those same players admit that every team cheats. They just didn't use electronics to do it like the Astros did, right? So, so really, everybody's just saying, oh, we're baddish. They're bad. And uh, that's what we're talking about in this series. In his uh, excellent book, Jerry Bridges, he writes this, on the whole, we appear to be more concerned about the sins of society than we are about the sins of the saints. We're kind of like these baseball players are saying, what I did is not really that bad. Those people are bad. And Jerry points out that some of these small sins that we, we tend to respect, he calls them respectable sins. He said, he said, these are very damaging. We have to address them. And he writes this about discontentment. He said, we are so used to responding to difficult circumstances with anxiety, frustration, or discontentment that we consider them normal reactions. When we fail to recognize these responses to our circumstances as sin, we are responding no differently from unbelievers who never factor God into their situations. We are back to ungodliness as the root cause of our sin. And he basically says, ungodliness is living life your life as if God doesn't really exist. And so we don't address, we look at everybody else and we don't address our sins. So write this down. Discontentment is a lack of satisfaction with your possessions, status, or circumstances. Your possessions, status, or circumstances. It connects into your hopes and desires and expectations about life when they don't get met and you're disappointed. And so full disclosure, I am a fellow struggler in wrestling with discontentment. Now, I will say that, you know, 30-some years ago, I nailed it down when I was feeling so restless and discontent. I nailed it down and made Jesus, you know, asking to be the Lord of my life, and I've been trying my best to follow him. So that deep down internal, I don't feel a much discontent way down in my soul, but I tell you, in dealing with life and everyday life, I struggle with a lot of discontentment, just like most of you do. It's a universal problem. And when I say discontentment, I'm not talking about a, a good or holy discontentment. There's some discontentment that's good. Like when we long for God, we wish we had more of a connection with God, or we want to be more like Jesus. We're not content with where we're at in life. That's a good discontentment. I'm also not talking about a, the kind of discontent that leads to a good and healthy ambition. There's some things we shouldn't be content with, right? Problems in the world, injustice, problems in our personal relationships. Discontentment can motivate us to take action and to do something to make things better. You know, just as an example, if I'm really struggling in my marriage, I should be discontent with my relationship, but a holy discontent 
would say, you know what? I need to look at myself. What can I do better? What do I need to fix? We need to get some help. Let's go talk to a counselor. Let's pray for each other. Let's fight through this. That's a holy discontentment. You want to get better. An unholy discontentment would say, wow, I'm not really happy with my wife right now. There's a lot of other people out there. Maybe we should just get a divorce. That would be an unholy discontentment. That's what it could lead to. So I hope that's a good, it makes sense to you. And one of the main reasons we struggle with this unholy discontentment is because deep down inside, we struggle trusting God. We struggle believing that God is really all I ultimately need and that he always does or allows what's best for me. He's working for my good in the midst of the things I don't like. We struggle to trust God. And sinful, sinful discontentment leads to a host of other sins in our lives. If you don't deal with your discontentment, it creates an attitude of ingratitude. We become so mindful of what we want and what we don't have that we're not thankful for all that God has given us. And you think about this, as a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, think about what God has done for you. I mean, Jesus died for you on the cross, paid the penalty for all your sins so you could be forgiven and free and have this peace and relationship with him forever. And yet we say, yeah, you know, Jesus, thanks a lot. I really want that. I appreciate that. But I really wish you'd give me a bigger house or a nicer car, or a better job. Again, it's not okay to want those things, but when you're discontent and you're not grateful, you think those are what's going to make me happy, not my relationship with Jesus, then it creates this this sin that just grows in your life. And how dare we, you know, kind of not have the proper gratitude for what Christ has really done for us. There's a story about a guy, he, a wealthy business owner, and one day he was at work and he overheard an employee say, man, if I just had a thousand more dollars, I could be content. So the boss, he went over to the employee, he reached in his pocket, he pulled out a thousand dollars. He said, hey, young man, you know, my money's never really bought me contentment, but man, I'd love to, if, if that would make you content, here you go. And as he walked away, he overheard the employee saying, man, I should have asked for $2,000. <laughs> I mean, isn't that like human nature? We're all like that, right? We, we always want more. And we can find the root, the root of all sin. If we look back in Genesis 3, part of that sin Adam and Eve committed was a discontentment. God placed Adam and Eve in a perfect environment. They had everything they needed. They, they had a relationship. Can you, be, can you imagine being married and not having sin in your relationship? Man, how, how much easier that would make marriage. And they had a perfect relationship with God. There was no sin. And then Satan came along and said, hmm, wow, you've got everything, but God's holding out on you. There's that one tree he told you you couldn't eat from. In fact, he twisted God's word. But there's that one tree, and he stirred up this discontent in their heart. And so they they wanted to take what God had said wouldn't be good for them, what he didn't want them to take. And out of their discontentment, sin came into the world. Discontent leads to lust and greed and envy. It's, It's this attitude of, I want more. What I have is not enough. And at the root of it, there's also a heart of pride and arrogance. It's like, I know what's better for me, better than God does. If I was God, I'd give myself this, and I'd do that. And we kind of have this pride. And discontentment robs your ability to celebrate with others for the good in their life. Because so often you're looking at what they have or what they've achieved, and deep inside you're going, man, why don't I have that? Why didn't I get that promotion? Why didn't I get that? And so it, it just stirs up this ugly stuff in us. But it's so common, we just kind of say, oh, it's not really that bad. It's just badish. But we have to address this. 
Now, King Solomon, he was David's son, and uh, his life is pretty fascinating. And he became king as a young man, and God said, hey, if you could have anything you want, ask me, what do you want? And, and Solomon asked for wisdom. And so God said, wow, that's such a good request. I'm going to give you wisdom and riches and wealth and fame. And Solomon began to lead this life. He, 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 as wise as he was, he made some really bad choices, and he started drifting away from God. And he started trying to find satisfaction in his life. And he did it, he tried to do it through making more money, through building nicer buildings, from, through all these different things he achieved and accomplished. And when you read the book of Ecclesiastes at the end, he said, wow, it was all meaningless apart from God. It was meaningless. I accomplished everything. I did anything a man could want. I had all these pleasures, and yet it didn't satisfy me. And so he wrote down a lot of really wise things for us. We can learn from his lessons in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And in Proverbs 27, he says, people will never stop dying and being destroyed, and they will never stop wanting more than they have. Kind of makes this equation, you know, people are just going to always keep dying. You know, it's very, it's just going to happen. It's, it's, things are going to end, and it's kind of like wanting more. It's destructive. It's not going to lead to anything. Eventually, you're going to be dissatisfied. He said they're never going to stop wanting more. And in his writings, Solomon wrote at least five things that are um, consequences of always wanting more. So I'm going to go through these really quickly. May not have time to read all the verses on the screen. The verses aren't on your outline, but you can look them up. Um, look them up. I put the references there. But always wanting more leads to more. It leads to more fatigue. Leads to more fatigue. Russian author Leo Tolstoy. Whenever I hear his name, I always think of Star Trek. I don't know why. It sounds like somebody on Star Trek. Leo Tolstoy. Over 100 years ago, he wrote this story about him, this rich man, this master. He said to one of his peasants that he really loved, he said, I'll give you as much land for you to keep as your own. I'll give you as much land as you can walk around in a day. Go. And so the peasant took off. And in fact, he started running. And he, he was running and running. He, he tried to get so much land. He gets going and going and going. And by the time he got back, he dropped dead of exhaustion. And you know, the, Solomon wrote, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to control yourself. And the race to get more drives us to overwork. And I mean, we can see that in people's lives all around us in the Bay Area. People struggling to make enough to live, and then they want more. And so they just race around. Always wanting more leads to more expenses leads to more expenses. Solomon said, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what is the advantage of wealth, except perhaps to watch it run through your fingers? The more you want, the always wanting more, it leads to more anxiety, more stress, more worry. You know, I, I got to be honest with you. I never worry about my yacht getting barnacles because I don't have a yacht, right? I don't worry about it. But if you own something, you got to start worrying for it. You got to take care of it. And the more you have, the more you worry about it. A study found insomnia increases with income. Wouldn't you think it'd be the opposite? But insomnia increases with income. Solomon said this, a working man can get a good night's sleep, but the rich man has so much that he stays awake worrying. Always wanting more leads to more conflict. Shouldn't be a surprise if you're always tired, if you're always stressed and anxious, if you have more expenses and more worries, then it's going to cause conflict. And Solomon said, a greedy man brings trouble to his family. So just time after time, always wanting more is going to cause... God, God's not against sin because he's against you. He's against sin because he's for you. He wants to protect you from these things. Always wanting more leads to more and more satis dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. 
Somebody asked Howard Hughes, the billionaire, how much does it take to make a man happy? He said, just a little more. (laughs) You know, 2,000 years before that great theologian Mick Jagger, Solomon was saying, I can't get no satisfaction. I just can't. And Solomon said, if you love money, you will never be satisfied. Solomon tried that. He said, you'll never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you will never get all you want. It is useless. Solomon was the wealthiest man in the world in his day. He's writing this. He's not some poor guy. He said, man, he had it all. He did it all. He said, it's not enough. It's useless. And here's what he learned. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Always wanting more. Always wanting what someone else has. It's going to hurt you. It's going to eat you up. And if you, want to, if you want to live a life with less fatigue, less expenses, less anxiety, less conflict, and less dissatisfaction, you're going to have to enroll in the school of contentment. I don't really like going to school. I'm just going to be honest. I'd rather be doing stuff. I'm not a, some people love to go to school, but man, this is a school we all need. And Paul, when he wrote this in Philippians, he wrote this powerful lesson for us. He didn't have a lot to be happy about. He didn't have a lot to be joyful about. He was stuck in prison, separated from his friends. He didn't know what was going to happen to him, if he was going to be acquitted or taken on to Rome or executed in some terrible way. Yet in the midst of all this, in Philippians, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then later he writes this. Just, you know, you think about his life, it's just kind of incredible he could say these things. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I've learned to be content. You might underline that phrase. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You put a little asterisk by verse 13. We're going to refer to that a couple times later because that's such a key verse. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can learn to be content through Jesus who gives me the strength to do it. You know, we're not by by, uh, nature contented people, but we can learn the secret of being content with Jesus's help. And so the first thing we have to do, number one, stop comparing myself to others. Stop comparing myself to others. You know, comparison comes naturally. I mean, we don't have to teach our children to do it. You've probably all seen it. You see a little child playing with some toys. They're happy as can be. Another kid comes into the room with a different toy. What does that first kid want to have? He wants the other toy, right? He wants the toy he doesn't have. That's just so childish, isn't it? I'm sure glad we all outgrow that. (laughs) You know, they say the The difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. You know, we have the same problems, right? Paul said this. He wrote, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves. And he talks about some other people that are doing that. We don't dare classify or compare ourselves. They are not wise. So it's not wise to do it. It's going to stir up a lot of junk in you. But it's it's like one of the things we, it's like one of our favorite indoor sports. You walk into somebody else's house and, you know, what are you doing right away? You're kind of comparing right? Oh, man, look at their floor. Their floor is so much nicer than mine. (laughs) Wow, look at those new drapes. Oh, I wish I had a car like that in my garage, you know, and you start comparing. You start comparing. You walk up to somebody and go, man, I really like his hair. I wish my hair would lay down and stay in place. Products don't work for me. Oh, wait, I've never thought that. (laughs) Wow, I wish I had his wife or her husband. I wish my kids were more like that. I wish I had that job. You know, and on and on we go. We just compare. 
And it makes it hard for us to be happy for what other people have. We need to learn to admire without having to acquire, to learn to be happy and celebrate what somebody else has, be happy for them. Learn to say, hey, that's a great painting you've got. I'm so glad you were able to get that. Or man, your backyard, it looks beautiful, your landscaping job. And then in your heart, pray a little prayer. Say, thank you, God, that I don't have their payments. Because <laughs> again, you don't know, a lot of people overextend themselves and cause a lot of stress, right? But learn to appreciate, ask God to help you have that heart of appreciation to be able to celebrate what other people have. You know, learn this principle, I don't have to own it to enjoy it. A lot of times, you know, you might think something like, uh, something expensive you'd like to do. Like, I just got this example of maybe you want a jet ski. You, you love to go to the lake a few times a year. You want a jet ski like everybody else. And so you go out and you buy some jet skis on credit. And then you go and use those jet skis probably less than 5% of the year. If you jet skied 5% of the year, you probably got fired at your job, right? So you go buy these jet skis and they sit in your garage 95% of the year. You're upset. You can't park your car in the garage. You got to insure those things. You got to pay tax on them. You got to take care of them. You got to maintain them. And, but you really only use them three times a year. And maybe there's some things like that you should think, you know, maybe I should just rent it instead of buying. I know it's expensive to rent it, but then I don't have to worry about it the rest of the year. I don't have to worry about somebody stealing it. I don't have to own it to enjoy it because once you own it, you've got the payments and the stress and all the worries. Comparing yourself to other people can lead to serious sin. So much so that God put it in the Big Ten. You know, the Ten Commandments. It's right there with murder, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. He says, you know what the Tenth Commandment is? It's like, don't compare yourself. Exodus 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Man, covet. You shouldn't covet. You're such a strong desire. Coveting... Let me tell you, coveting can lead to theft, murder, and adultery. It can lead to all kinds of problems. Write this down. Covet is uncontrolled desire to acquire. Uncontrolled desire to acquire. It's like, man, I've got to get what you have. And it can even lead to, I've got to have yours. And I'll do anything to have what you have. I'll, I'll borrow. I'll, I'll steal. I'll, I'll figure something out. I'll break rules so I can have what you have. And that's what discontentment can lead to. Now, let me be clear. God is not saying that you should never have any desires. That's not what he's saying, okay? That's not Christianity. That's Buddhism. It always makes me laugh when people say all world religions are the same. Now, I'm not knocking Buddhists. I'm just saying what they are after is not the same thing that God points us to, okay? Buddhism basically says all the suffering and pain in the world is the result of desire, and the whole goal of Buddhism is you want to eliminate desire in your life. Because if I don't have any desires, I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm not going to suffer and I'm not going to hurt anyone else. And when you achieve that state of no desire, that's what they call nirvana. And nirvana, nirvana does not mean pleasure. It does not mean heaven. It doesn't mean having a relationship with God. It's like existing in this state of nothingness where you just, you're, you're completely content. Because you have no desires, you have no, but there's nothing else going on, right? The Bible is exactly opposite. We're created for relationships. God gave us desires. Coveting is an uncontrolled desire to acquire. It's an unhealthy desire. Nothing in life is accomplished. Nothing significant is accomplished without some serious desires. 
You know, you can't build a great city, build a great company, build a great family, build a great relationship with Christ without a desire to do that. You have to have some desire, some ambition, a healthy ambition. So our desires come from God. It's just we have to be careful. They don't get out of bounds and we get this uncontrolled desire to acquire. So it's so important, the school of contentment, you have to stop comparing. And the second thing is you have to learn to enjoy what I have. Enjoy what I have. Too often, we're so busy going after what else we want, the next thing we want, that we don't stop and enjoy what we have. And how many people do you know who go out and overextend themselves to buy a beautiful house, and then they're never at home because they're too busy working to pay for it and to get things to fill the house up with, right? Beautiful backyards sit empty, and swimming pools sit unswimmed in, or unswammed or unswummed. I don't know. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes English, I, I don't know what you figured out, but you know, you got to enjoy what you have. I have a relative. I have a relative. They, they could have bought a townhouse here in the Bay Area, but they wanted a house. And so they moved a couple hours away and wound up having to commute back to the Bay Area because they couldn't get a job good enough there to pay for their much cheaper house. So they were spending five hours a day commuting for six or seven years. Like, wow, I, whew, man, they could have been living right here in something a little smaller, being happy and enjoying it. They can't enjoy it when they're not there. Did you know that God wants you to enjoy life? Not just endure it. Sometimes it feels like, oh, I just got to get through life. He wants you to enjoy it. And a lot of people think God is some kind of party pooper. Like, I was thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Kindergarten Cop, the party pooper. <laughs> some people think God's this party pooper who wants you to go through life all serious and never happy, never laugh, never have any fun, and never enjoy anything. But that's not what the Bible says. And that, it, it's just common sense. Look at how God made us. God created taste buds, and then he gave us sushi and cinnabons, right? God created eardrums, and he gave us music. We don't need music for survival. Why did God give us music? It's for enjoyment and pleasure and creating, and we can express our emotions. God gave us skin that can feel and touch and experience pleasure. God gave us eyes, and he created the world with color. He could have made everything black and white. It's all for our enjoyment, sunrises and sunsets and beauty. The fact is, God enjoys watching his children enjoy what he's made for them. Just like his parents, if you have kids, you love it when you give your kids something and you see them enjoying it and having a good time. Solomon said this, if God gives us wealth and property and lets us enjoy them, we should be grateful and enjoy what we have worked for. It is a gift from God. Can you underline that? We should be grateful and enjoy. You know, Everything, the Bible says, you know, your, even your ability to work is from God, your ability to make money, and you should enjoy what God allows you to make and do, what he's given you. It's a gift. This is a commandment. And you're commanded also not just to enjoy it, to enjoy what you have, but you're commanded to practice gratitude. Write that down, practice gratitude. You know, ingratitude is a sin too when you're not thankful for what God has provided for you. And man, I'll tell you as a parent, I love watching my kids Enjoy what I have. But when they're not grateful, man, that really rubs me the wrong way. Just rub, And, you know, when we're not thankful and grateful for what God has done for us, we're made as his image. I, I believe it just it hurts his heart. So we need to replace discontentment with gratitude and enjoying what we have. Uh, and, and don't just receive. The idea is you don't just want to go around and resist doing something. It's like, oh, I'm just going to struggle not to be discontented. I'm going to try to be, I'm going to struggle not to be discontented. I'm going to it's like if I told you, don't think about purple elephants. 
They're terrible beasts. Don't think about purple elephants. And you go around all week, you're trying not to think about purple elephants, but you keep thinking about purple elephants, right? It would be better if I said, don't think about purple elephants. Think about pink cows. They're such cuddly, cute little creatures, right? Think about pink cows. It's easier not to think about elephants if you replace it with something else. So I want to, what I'm saying is practice replacing your discontentment with gratitude and enjoy what you have. Again, man, Solomon learned this lesson. He's telling, learn from his mistakes. He says, enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. You know, something about seeing real poverty that makes you a whole lot more grateful for what you have, makes you appreciate common, ordinary, everyday things like hot water. How many of you like hot water? I love taking a hot shower. That's like, it's like a religious experience. That's where I do my best thinking. The phone's not going off. I get in, I'm thinking. But when I lived in Korea, sometimes my hot water didn't work. I lived in a very cold apartment for a part of my time. I was freezing. I was sleeping with a beanie on. And one time I went to visit this friend of mine, a coworker, a Korean guy named Hama. It was was his nickname for hippo because he had no neck. He was this real big burly guy. And I went and stayed with this guy, Hama, for a few days, the most joyful guy I've ever known. And he didn't have much at all. He He didn't have a tub. He didn't have a shower. He didn't have hot water. We had to go blocks down the street to a public bathhouse to take a bath. Really embarrassing for me. I was the only white guy in the whole place. Just, I, I really stood out. I mean, felt like the center of attention. I did not want to be. You know what else I enjoy having? A sink. Man, we recently did a remodel. We had to do dishes in the driveway for a while. <laughs> so I enjoy a sink. I never really appreciated a sink before. Another thing I really enjoy is toilet paper. <laughs> you don't know what you got till it's gone. I mean, I've traveled to some places where they do not provide toilet paper, and I did not know that beach in Mexico, big shopping center in Korea, train in Thailand. Man, I've been some places where, boy, when I got home, I really appreciated toilet paper. So God wants you to enjoy what you have now. Don't live with this when-then thinking. When I get a boyfriend, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I'm single again, I'll be really happy. (laughs) When I have kids, then I'll be happy. When those darn kids go off to school, then I'll finally be happy. When I get married again, then I'll be happy, right? That's that when and then. God wants you to enjoy what you have now. And then the third thing, number three, is really important too. Shift shift the object of your hope. Shift the object of your hope. You know, believe it or not, nothing you see, nothing you have is going to last forever. It's going to rust out, wear out, decay, even if it winds up in a museum one day and they're preserving it. The Bible says one day everything here is going to disappear. Nothing here is made to last. Nothing here is made to last except God's word and people. And God said this to, uh, through Paul to Timothy. He's writing to this young man. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Can you circle that word? It's uncertain. But put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You know, God doesn't change. You can count on God. You can trust in him. But, man, your stuff can come and go. People can steal it. You can lose it. We can have a recession. You can have a fire. I mean, just ask some of the people that live up in paradise. You could lose everything. You can't put your hope in stuff. God says, shift your hope from wealth and achievements and stuff to God, someone who's reliable. The very next verse is not on your outline, but Paul says, command those who are rich to use their money to do good, to be generous and willing to share. You know, one of the antidotes to materialism and discontent is generosity. 
And one of the ways you know you're materialistic, when somebody starts talking about giving or tithing and you start getting a little tight inside, that's a sign of materialism because what you're saying is, I'm not willing to do without something to give to God. I'm not willing to give something up to give back to God. And the truth is, God doesn't need your money. He's just trying to help your heart, to help you keep from having things having a grip on you. So write this down. The secret of contentment is found not in what you have or hope for. It's found in who you hope in. It's found in who you hope in. The Bible tells us there's only two things going to last forever. God's Word and people. That's why we need to be spending time reading God's Word, getting His truth in our, in our minds. Because the culture around us, everything I'm trying to tell you today, the culture is telling you the opposite. The culture's telling you, you need more. You need to be better. You need to be a better person. You need to be thinner. You need to be sexier. You need to have more stuff. You need to have a better car in order to be content. So am I going to listen to the world or am I going to listen to God's word? And then people. People are eternal. That's why it's so important to share our faith, invest our time and energy in trying to share with people and point them to God. You know, what are you living for? God wants you to be content with what you have and to enjoy Him. There was a famous millionaire uh, back in Orange County years back, and she had so much money, and uh, she, she committed suicide. And at the funeral, somebody said, I don't understand it. She had so much to live for. And somebody else said, wrong. She had so much to live on. She had nothing to live for. God wants you to live for Him. He says this, Hebrews, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You might circle that word for. It's really important. (laughs) The secret of contentment is finding my security and my satisfaction, not in what I have, but in whose I am and who I belong to and who I know. When you're consciously walking with your shepherd, he says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's why we encourage you. Spend time in God's word. Read, connect with him, pray. David wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a beautiful verse. You're walking with God. You're not going to be living with all this discontentment eating you up inside. You're going to be a little more free of that discontentment. And the truth is there's some circumstances in our lives that we're never going to be happy about. There's going to, we all have some challenges and struggles, and, and it's okay not to be happy about them, but you don't let that eat you up. You learn to trust God, that God's working with you in those circumstances. You accept that those circumstances are the way they are, and God's with you. Jerry Bridges writes this, acceptance means that you accept your circumstances from God, trusting that he unerringly knows what is best for you, and that in his love, he purposes only that which is best. He's going to walk with you through that. Now, I want you to hear from one of my heroes, a short uh, testimony from a guy named Nick Vujicic. I can't say his name right. I want to put the rest of this video on our church Facebook page, but this guy's one of my heroes. And uh, he has to face some, he had to come to accept some pretty amazing challenges. So uh, watch this with me. My dad was saying that he was, you know, his head was next to my mom's head as, uh, as I was being born. And he saw my shoulder and he just went pale. And he was hoping my mom didn't see me because he saw that I had no right arm. And my dad had to leave the room and he couldn't believe what he saw. And the doctor came in and my dad said, my son, he has no right arm. And he says, no, your son has no arms or legs. And he said he nearly fell on the floor. He couldn't believe it. And the whole church was mourning, you know, like why would God let the pastor's son be born that way? And my mom, at first, she didn't want to hold me. She didn't want to, you know, breastfeed me and all that. 
um, she just felt very uncomfortable for the first four months and it took them quite a while before they could trust in God that he didn't make a mistake, that he didn't forget them or me. Nick's parents gave their fear and even disappointment in their son's disability over to the Lord. They chose to trust God and his promise that he had a plan and purpose, a hope and a future for their son. But as the years passed, Nick, on the other hand, had many challenges trusting in a God that he felt gave him less. I challenged God. I said, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I won't probably have peace until you're in my heart, but I will not let you in my heart until you answer me why. Why did you take my arms and legs? Why didn't you give me what everybody else has? And I said, God, until you answer me that question, I will not serve you. And so I wanted to end it. If God wasn't going to end my pain, I was going to end it myself. So at age eight, I tried to drown myself in a bathtub of four inches of water. I told my mom and dad, I'm just going to relax in the bathtub. Can you put me in the bathtub? And uh, yeah, I turned over a couple times to see if I could do it, I couldn't do it. Um, the thought that stopped me from going through with it was the love for my parents. Because um, I, I love them so much and all they did was love me. And I thought to myself, if I actually went through with this, I pictured my funeral, I pictured my parents, and all I saw was guilt on their shoulders that they couldn't have done more. That would be the last time Nick would attempt suicide but it wouldn't be the last time he would come face to face with those deep issues that made him want to end the pain. Then one day, Nick's mother had him read an article about a severely disabled man. And that man's story made a huge impact on Nick. <laughs> I have a choice to either be angry at God for what I don't have or be thankful for what I do have. And my mom, she said, Nick, God's gonna use you. I don't know how, I don't know when, but God's gonna use you. And those seeds started penetrating in my heart. And that's when I started seeing that there is no point in being complete on the outside when you're broken on the inside. And I found out that God can heal you without changing a circumstance. Man, every time I hear him talk, it just humbles me. And I don't know if you caught what he said, but he said, I had to choose. I could be angry at God for what I don't have or thankful for what I do have. And he had to come to that place in his life. And once he got to that place, God began to use him in miraculous ways and has opened doors for him to speak. He's spoken in over 24 countries. Over 3 million people have heard him talk. And they estimate about 200,000 people have given their lives to Jesus because of how he's, he learned to be content with what he had. He had to accept some circumstances. And uh, man, if I was in his shoes, I don't know if I could do that. But if God could help him learn to be content, he can help you. He can help me. There's hope for us. We can learn this lesson. And I'll tell you, we'll never be content. We'll never be content. And Nick was never content until he came to that place where, where he invited Christ into his life and he chose to trust him. And you'll never be content without Christ. The good news of Jesus is he came to save us from our sins, to save us from all this discontentment that eats us up, to fill us up and connect us with our creator. <clears throat> St. Augustine said this hundreds of years, thousands, a couple thousand years ago, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. A lot of truth in that. Restless hearts, people running around trying to fill up what's missing. And Pascal said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, 
but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. There's this vacuum, this void, something's missing, and it just it pulls at you, and you want to fill it with something. You know something's missing deep down inside, but only Jesus can fill that hole. You know, my dad likes to do puzzles. I don't know if any of you guys are puzzle workers. And my mom's super thrifty. You know, puzzles are expensive, a nice puzzle. So my mom will go to the thrift store and she'll buy puzzles for like a quarter instead of $20, right? But that's a, that's, that's a high risk reward uh, activity right there because then they have these thousand piece, 1500 piece puzzles. I'm going to go see my, my parents in a few days and there'll be a puzzle out on the table and there's all this... Um, you know, fun and putting the puzzle together and getting the pieces and they work on a little bit every day. But as they get near the end, anxiety starts to creep in, right? You know what they're thinking? I hope all the pieces are here. (laughs) I've been there when all the pieces weren't there. It's not pretty. My 80-year-old parents are down on the floor looking for, I don't know how they're going to get up. They're down there looking for puzzle pieces, right? It doesn't matter. You got 999 pieces all, all, and you can see the picture. If one piece is missing, Man, it's just kind of disappointing, right? And it kind of bothers them. Like, man, they keep looking and hoping. They leave it out a few extra days. But nothing else will fill that piece up. And if you don't have Jesus in your life, you're like a puzzle. There's, there's something missing that not only will fill up that part of you, but will enrich every other part of you. Will make everything else meaningful. And maybe you're here today and you, you've just been, there's this emptiness that's in you. You just know something's missing and you've tried everything you've tried relationships you've tried success you've tried money you've tried education you've tried pleasure and maybe God's saying to you today you know your life's never going to be complete without Christ never be content without Christ maybe today's the day you open the door and invite him in maybe you're here and you have a lot of questions and doubts and struggles and maybe you're angry at God like Nick he was angry at God well let me encourage you go to Alpha Go to the Alpha group. You can talk to some people, ask your questions, share your frustrations, listen to their stories. If you want to be complete, if you want to have true contentment, you've got to fight through and find out if that's real, if that's true, and come to that place where you realize Jesus is the missing piece. Jesus said this, what good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade for your soul? When you bow your heads for just a moment and pray with me, maybe you're here today and you want to just invite Jesus into your heart. You've never experienced that. Just say, Jesus, I know I've sinned. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I need you. I don't understand everything, but would you come into my heart, forgive me, and lead me? And maybe you're here and you've been following Christ, but you're wrestling with a lot of discontentment. You're struggling to truly trust God, that he's with you in, in the midst of your circumstances. And I just challenge you to talk to him about that. Admit that to him. Ask for his help. Ask him to help you to learn contentment. Lord, we thank you that in spite of us, in spite of our failures, our sin, our, our, our junk, you sent your son to come here and live and die for us so that we could be complete, that we could be whole, that we could be restored to a relationship with you. And God, teach us this lesson of contentment. God, don't let it eat us up. Help us to live these uh, contented life that will attract others to you. They'll show them that the hope and peace that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.